This is a Theology Matters podcast. I'm your host, Josh Malden, and I'm here today with a very special guest, Aaron Rafferty. Dr. Rafferty's been involved in a CTI project for the last couple of years on the, the Spiritual Loop Project, looking at machine intelligence and pastoral care. And you can find a lot of information about that project at ctinquiry.org, including a, f- a final report, a research report that Dr. Rafferty uh, wrote, as well as a, a video of us and some others talking about that program and a variety of articles. So we won't talk so much about that since there's so much material on there, but I wanted to start by mentioning that. And then um, let me first welcome you to the podcast, Aaron Rafferty. Oh, thank you for having me, Josh. Thanks for being here. And the reason uh, we're talking today is because I wanted to bring you on to talk about two books that you published this past year. Um, Both of them came out in 2022. Is that right? No, 2023. There's one in 2022. Yeah, one is dated 2023, but they both technically came out within like a month of (laughs) two months of each other, September and November last year. It's amazing. These are not, you know, these are single authored monographs that you wrote uh, yourself. They're not edited volumes. You you actually put out two, which is impressive. I've never seen that. Two books coming out within a month of each other. And let's have a chance to talk about both. One is called From Inclusion to Justice, Disability, Ministry, and Congregational Leadership. And the other, and that one is published by Baylor University Press. And the other is Families We Need, Disability, Abandonment, and Foster Care's Resistance in Contemporary China, and that's published by Rutgers University Press, and this one is based on years of ethnography you did in Guangxi province in China. And um, maybe as a way to get into these, because the, the two books sort of are examples of your own biographical journey where you're working both in theology, ministry, but also in anthropology. So maybe t- talk a bit about how that, that uh, journey went about. Yeah, so I'm trained as a cultural anthropologist. That's my PhD is in cultural anthropology, but I have a master's in divinity. And so I actually did that master's, obviously, before the PhD. And while I was doing my master's in divinity at Princeton Seminary, which is a very good school and was a very good experience, so nothing against that, but I just have always been fascinated by other cultures. And so at Princeton Seminary, I was actually looking through the curriculum being like, but when are we going to learn about cultures and, you know, how churches interact with cultures? And when are we going to learn, you know, beyond biblical uh, Hebrew and Greek, you know, Spanish and Chinese? And I felt like these were such valuable tools for budding pastors and for the future of the church. And so during that time, during my master's at Princeton Seminary, I started taking classes again, my um bachelor's was also in anthropology. So I started taking more classes in anthropology across the street at Princeton University and then gradually realized that if I felt like I was going to do the ministry that God had called me to in the church, it would involve, you know, a more advanced cultural education. And in my case, because I do ethnography and immersive education in different cultures. So that uh, PhD took me to China. So that book that you mentioned, Families We Need, is the result of my dissertation fieldwork. So I lived for two years in the Guangxi Autonomous Region and did fieldwork with foster families, raising children with disabilities, um, some of whom were adopted abroad as well. So that book is thinking about this uh, local experience of family making and then how it interacts with national and international politics of family making. 
Um, but I always knew that I wanted to use, again, that cultural education to serve the church. So when I came back from China, and I should say also the other thing, when I went to China, I didn't know that um, the vast majority of children in orphanages in China are disabled children today, and that the vast majority of children being adopted internationally, especially from China, are now disabled. So that was a real surprise for me, a real ethnographic surprise in the field. So I came back and I had to kind of start studying disability uh, because I hadn't really had that as part of my cultural education in anthropology. And then my personal narrative gets woven in here because uh, a couple years after we came back from China, I gave birth to a child that uh, has profound disabilities. And that was just another surprise in life. And so the good thing is because of the experience I had had in China and the experience getting to know these families, my husband and I kind of just hit the ground running like, oh, wow, we saw these foster families loving these disabled children. We have a disabled child now, you know, that's a very familiar thing to us. And we're going to go on this journey with her. So my daughter is now nine. <laughs> but my experience after finishing my PhD and teaching then at Princeton Theological Seminary and kind of going into practical theology and using ethnographic methods to inform practical theology led me to this second study, which is um, a study of 11 different churches in the New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia region, and um, thinking with them about how they do disability ministry and studying those experiences, getting to know people in the church and especially disabled lay leaders and clergy um, as well. So I always describe this as, you know, obviously I went to seminary and I'm trained as a Presbyterian pastor. I'm ordained actually in that tradition. And so I had given my life to God, my life in service and ministry to God. But I remember distinctly the moment where, you know, my personal experience with my daughter was intersecting with my scholarship in such a way that I realized, wow, I'm not going to really be able to go back to China with this child who has such medical, uh, a medically complex um, profile. And now I'm kind of really well positioned as a pastor because I've been raising a disabled child in the church to write about this. And I just remember this moment where I was sitting in my cubicle in Princeton and like threw up my hands and was like, okay, God, you can have my scholarship too. <laughs> so I think it's been an interesting journey of really appreciating uh, all the opportunities that I've had that were completely unexpected to me, but I think have made my life and my scholarship so much richer. It's an amazing story. It, you were in China for several years, so it's probably too, I mean, it would be difficult to sort of summarize all your experiences there. But what were some of the kind of biggest surprises, challenges, insights? You've already said that you, you weren't, you know, intending to study disability so much when you went, but that sort of arose on its own. But what were some of the other nice surprises or challenges that you had there? Yeah, so it was incredibly challenging the two years that we spent in China. I mean, a lot of it is simply being, so I'm a, you know, white woman. And so I was in a very remote area and I say remote, but I lived in a city of 6 million people. So, um, but just yeah. some people compare Guangxi to like the West Virginia of China. So it's kind of known to be off the beaten path. And a lot of of folks who, if they live in this capital city that I mentioned where I did my research, they have migrated there from the countryside and they are really 
um, adapting from a country way of life to a city way of life. And so um, going to a remote place like that and being a white woman, people were very uh, curious, but also very skeptical, especially when it comes to gaining entry into municipal orphanages. There is a history, and some folks may have seen documentaries on this, of um, abuse of uh, children in orphanages, children living in poor conditions that was exposed to uh, the world in the 1990s. And people think of the one-child policy and the abandonments of, of baby girls. And so the government is really concerned about that image that was was given off and really concerned about uh, foreigners gaining entry to these orphanages and seeing things for themselves and you know being able to trust them. So that was a difficult feature of my research is like gaining trust in the first place with people. Um, the language was really challenging because in Guangxi, um, Mandarin is most people's like second or third language. They uh, speak a local dialect that's similar to Cantonese. And then some folks even speak Zhuang. The reason it's an autonomous region is because there is a um, minority group, the, the Zhuang people there that have their own language and culture. And so that was really fascinating because Mandarin is also my third language. My second language is Spanish. <laughs> so um, just kind of trying to communicate was very challenging uh, in, in this language for, for all of us. And then there's lots of cultural differences that come along with that. So it's a really fascinating and wonderful, you know, pluralistic, <laughs> linguistic uh, culture. But then I even just finding foster families was difficult. So I knew foster families were really important to the practice of international adoption. I had read uh, scholarship on that and seen documentaries. But when I got to uh, Guangxi and to, to Nanning, like people were like, oh, no, no, they're, I don't, I've never heard of foster families. <laughs> and so the Chinese term for foster family is just not really well known. It's not part of kind of the nomenclature unless you're in the know and you're part of kind of the social work or um, orphanage culture. People use um, local terms to talk about adoption, but when it comes to adoption from an orphanage, that's a very specific thing, and there actually is a lot of um, prejudice around that because people perceive that child who has been, I would use the term, abandoned into the orphanage um, as not having family ties, which makes you really doesn't make you much of a cultural person. Um, in China, you know, your family ties are so important there. So when those children are then adopted, often they're adopted outside of the country. And then another reason for that is, as I mentioned, uh, the children that I got to know in China were um, by and large disabled, the ones that were living in orphanages. So that was kind of a whole nother layer. And I talk about in the book that I really, you know, want to be careful about the way that I'm analyzing what's going on here, because it's so... Um, complex in terms of government policy. When I was there, the one-child policy was still in effect. So that made it very difficult for people to adopt domestically. Um, also, there is this, as I mentioned, this cultural, uh, you know, we call it familization in the, in the literature on China. There's this real strong priority for family ties. And so that does make people somewhat reticent to adopt. Um, that's all changing quite a bit, you can imagine, with the removal of the one-child policy. And then um, just with people in China, like people all around the world, having more progressive ideas towards disabled children. But another thing that was going on that I talk about in the book that was really interesting was this uh, demand feature of the international adoption trade, I would call it, 
where it's not just supply. So there were certainly um, disproportionately large populations of disabled children in Chinese orphanages, and there still are, but there's Western demand. There's demand um, in these more affluent countries around the world for uh, Chinese disabled children that I uh, posit in the book might be also kind of fueling or exacerbating the supply in a way. So I always want to point out that it's not that um, parents in China who have disabled children abandon them at really high rates. That's not true at all. The Chinese population is just so large that you do have a sizable population of disabled children in these orphanages. There really isn't a lot of social welfare support for these children. And so I saw them getting kind of exported to Western countries, which was really, really fascinating. And I saw the foster mothers as well um, questioning kind of what role they play uh, in the raising of these children. Uh, These foster mothers were older. They were kind of on the fringes of Chinese society. Um, A lot of older folks don't have a really strong pension or ties to their adult children that have grown up and moved away. And so they were looking for something to really fulfill them. And they found fostering disabled children to be that, but they were not positioned as the ultimate parents of these children. They saw themselves as perhaps giving this child a better life by this child being adopted to another country. So that was an interesting (laughs) way to parent. And then the book kind of goes into, um, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself maybe, but you know, we, we think of foster families as temporary, but I saw them playing lots of different roles. And some of the foster families fostered these children for their entire life. Some of them fostered them for, you know, a short amount of time. Some children, ultimately, because they had such significant medical conditions, ended up back in an orphanage. So I am, yeah, playing with that question of um, these are families we need because, you know, families across the globe literally need these families <laughs> to uh, prepare their children for international adoption. I think these are families that that China needs as well. I think sometimes we don't think about families as interconnected as they are, but of course, um, I think all families, you know, that one of the deep things about being a family is your your need for one another. And so I think this is kind of interesting how we position some families as deeply needy. And that's how the foster families were positioned in contradistinction to Western families that were affluent and didn't need them, but they really did need them. So, you know, it's just uh, fascinating layers <laughs> um, in my experience in doing research in China. It's fascinating. I have so many questions. One, did you see kind of what, what was it like to see evidence or was there evidence of the, the, par- the foster parents in, in some sense, going through a difficult process when the when the children would leave to be adopted. I mean, were they was it kind of a grieving process there, or were they mainly happy that the child found a, a permanent home? Yeah, I talk about this in the book how mm-hmm. emotional the field work was, and I was in my late twenties, and I didn't have any children of my own, and I think I was incredibly naive about the field work that I was doing. Because as I started to form relationships with these foster families and their children and saw the children go through so many challenges, I mean, be they health challenges or be it just around this temporary nature of the relationship and the child for some reason being removed from the home or the child being adopted out, that these were, you know, real important bonds that broke hearts. So I remember one morning when I showed up um, to Auntie Lee's household, and she's one of the primary foster mothers in the book who was um, raising a foster child called 
pay pay, but her younger foster daughter was adopted domestically to a family in China. And so I showed up at their house one morning and their younger foster daughter was gone and they were just all sobbing um, and, you know, clinging to each other. It was so painful. It was a bit sudden. Like, I mean, I think sometimes the foster families had advance notice, but sometimes they didn't have much advance notice. These adoptions could be processed relatively quickly or their expectations were different or whatever. And one of the things that the orphanage workers used to say to the foster mother is, is the only cure for a broken heart is to take another, like to take another child. And um, while I think that that is somewhat true, I saw foster mothers who fostered like 15, 16 children over, you know, not 15 or 16 years, right? even shorter than that. Um, and these foster mothers were, you know, like I said, grandparent age. So they had maybe children of their own, but this is a deep emotional burden. And I went to China with this human question of kind of like, how can anyone do this? And I came back uh, and I feel like, you know, I wrestle with this in the book with really no explanation because this is such incredibly emotionally tiresome work. And I think that the foster mothers, I, I do feel that they, they get something um, very meaningful out of these relationships. As I mentioned, they um, kind of feel discarded from society. They feel obsolete. Um, there's this gigantic older population in China. Um, and although older people are to be revered, the culture in China is really changing. And in a lot of ways, kind of more with modernization, privileging young people and investing in young people and privileging youth. And so they definitely experienced that. So by raising a child, they felt that they were doing something really important on behalf of the government and the nation and themselves. And then it connected them to other people in society. Like I would see these families, you know, out in the courtyard um, of apartment buildings playing and meeting other families. And when I walked through um, villages, because there were some rural placements for foster uh, children, I would um, see how amazing these relationships uh, that developed between um families families were because they had these these children that they were collaborating with right to kind of raise as a village as a community so yeah it was <laughs> heartbreaking um and i think that's one of the things that i try to get across in the book uh is how not temporary right <laughs> these relationships are i talk about them in terms of emotional excess that like the emotions exceed the bonds of the foster care relationship in spades um, for both, you know, for the children um, as well as the the parents. Even I talk about the orphanage workers who are involved in facilitating these relationships who were um, younger women, but they themselves felt really um, tugged at because they would see how deep the investment of these foster mothers, especially the fathers were there, but I was spent more time with the mothers was in the lives of these disabled children. And they actually felt a little sheepish that they were at the same time away from their own families. Um, cause they had young families, young children at home, but they would go, you know, for weeks <laughs> to visit different foster families and to prioritize their relationships. And that was a hard reality for them. What did the foster uh, parents, how did they think about your own presence there with them? Maybe speak to that and kind of questions they had for, for you and so on. Yeah. So I talk in the book about how I would uh, 
walk around these apartment complexes because often they would place children among different foster parents in um, apartment complexes that were close to each other. As I mentioned, that was just a really nice experience for them to trade um, information, especially too, because a lot of these kids, as I mentioned, had disabilities or were medically complex, so they could really help each other in, in the raising of these children and their particular needs. And um, I would travel with one of the orphanage monitors um, or the orphanage directors and, and meet families for the first time. And foster mothers would actually start to physically push their children toward me and say, oh, you should adopt this one. You know, he's wonderful. Or you should adopt this child. She's beautiful. Or even like this child has, um, you know, a deformity of his foot, but it's really not such a big deal. <laughs> and kind of try to like mm -hmm. um, really sell me on that this child would make a wonderful um, child for me to adopt because they just presumed, oh, I'm a white young woman of childbearing age in their community. I must be there to adopt a child. And so that shows how strong the presence of international adoption was in foster care that, you know, foster care in China, especially when it comes to disabled children, today largely supports international adoption out of China of these children. And so in that way, you know, these families play a critical, pivotal role, but it's also kind of complicated um, because, like I said, playing that temporary role is, is really challenging. So I would have to try to get past that um, misrepresentation. And it was, I realized now looking back on it, I was trying so hard to be like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I'm not like <laughs> those other people. Like, I'm not here to adopt. I'm here to study you. <laughs> like, I'm here to connect with you. Um, but, you know, I think this speaks to the complexity of research relationships that, you know, I was really learning so much from the generosity of them letting me into their lives. And you can see that it really was challenging for them to trust me or perceive me as anything other than somebody who wanted to take these children. Another really interesting interaction is that um, foster mothers would constantly ask me, like they would go into their house and like pull out a letter from a parent written in English, you know, from Chicago or something and say, do you know this person? And can you translate this letter? You know, I've, and, and it's like a letter that they've had for 10 years that they can't really mm -hmm. read very well, but they value it because they miss this child and there's pictures and they know it's important, but they have no connection, you know, anymore to, to the child. And it, it's not the case that I think, um, a lot of families don't try to keep in touch, but that was challenging. The orphanage was kind of suspicious of that because they didn't want the foster families asking for money. So there was this sense that um, they, and they kind of, I think they didn't want to see the, they didn't want the adoptive families to see the the poverty of some of these households because some of these women really weren't well off and were just doing this with everything they had and they were embarrassed. And so, um, yeah, I, I kind of was a really ambivalent, I think, uh, presence in that way. And yet I got really close to both the orphanage monitors who were my age and the foster families. And I felt um, kind of betwixt and between them because um, sometimes the older foster mothers were really frustrated with the orphanage monitors and the demands they would make on them and the criticisms they had of their parenting because they thought they were old and kind of backward in the way they were doing things. Um, and at first I felt really defensive of the foster moms. But as I got to know the um, younger orphanage monitors, like I said, I started to see how difficult their lives were trying to make a living as young professionals and 
raise their young families. And I saw that like underneath the criticism actually was an envy of these foster families and the closeness that they experienced and kind of the simplicity of their lives because these women were retirees and they could spend more time with the children, almost more like a grandparent relationship. And here they were like hustling all the time. And then there was also this sense of, um, especially the the village placements for foster families in the countryside. Like I said, a lot of the people in Nanning grew up in the countryside. So they would go out to this village and they would be nostalgic <laughs> for all of the experiences in their childhood, even as they felt that they had to make it in the city, right? If they were going to make it at all. So just so many dynamics of um, cultural change in China, but then also I think, you know, kind of how this international adoption trade has affected family making in China that I felt <laughs> as a person mm -hmm. myself. Maybe turning to your other book now, um, From Inclusion to Justice, it's also got an ethnographic um, lens. You worked with a, a whole number of families in the New Jersey, New York uh, area. The title is From Inclusion to Justice. So maybe we can start there because that's a, a key theme is why the, the sort of window of inclusion is something you want congregations to uh, move away from. Yeah, so this book um, was a little bit different in that I didn't go, I couldn't go live in all these different places in New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia with 11 different churches. Um, but I had a research team uh, made up of some Princeton Seminary students, and we uh, spent time with all these congregations uh, over maybe an eight-month period doing field work from 2019 into um, 2020 when, um, obviously we couldn't really do that anymore <laughs> easily due to the pandemic. Mm. Um, but we were interested in understanding how these congregations navigate ministry with disabled people. And that was one of the findings that came out of the study is like across the board, we saw all these churches talking about inclusion or inclusive ministry, including disabled people in their ministry and worship. And so we got to studying, well, what does that mean? And what does that look like? And I should say that these congregations gave us so many incredible, I call them glimmers of the kingdom, <laughs> in getting to know disabled people and disabled leaders within them. But they also spoke to a challenge, which is that disabled people in congregations don't just want to participate in ministry. They really want to seat at the table. And that's something we saw across the board, folks saying, well, I don't just want to participate or receive from ministry. Like, I want to um, be a minister myself. I want to lead. I want to, um, you know, be able to to do things and take agency and, and ownership over what God has called me to do. And so we saw that that wasn't happening when uh, churches were using this model of inclusion, because inclusion is kind of like assimilation. It um, hopes to uh, give disabled people access to everything able-bodied people have access to, but it doesn't really look at changing like the container <laughs> or the system or the institution. So the way this happens in churches is churches kind of have this well-meaning sense like, oh, well, we can welcome disabled people into our church as it is. But when disabled people start to say, oh, this aspect of church doesn't work for me, often churches get defensive or they don't want to hear that. But that's precisely where kind of transformation can and needs to happen because disabled people are really lifting up valuable information and insight to us by showing us ways in which our worship 
our ministry practices, our very institutions of church are exclusive, right? And don't make space for disabled people. So I have this vision in the book that, you know, Jesus is really at the center of that calls us away from something like inclusion and more towards something like justice, where disabled people are actually ministers and leaders. And it just sounds so simple to say, but I say in the book, you know, when it comes to disability ministry, disabled people should be at the center of it. Like they should be leading it. But so often you see that that's not the case. So this is the invitation to churches in the book to move from inclusion to justice. Mm. Yeah, when I was reading it, I kept thinking of the word, you know, avoiding being a kind of patron or patronizing um, approach where it's like, I'm here to help you on my terms, but you have to <laughs> go in the way that I'm, I'm helping you. Mm -hmm. Completely turning the tables on that and bringing people to the to the actual table of, of leadership, of making key decisions of, of ministry, as you say. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges around that is just the way we still think about disability and disabled people in this country. Mm -hmm. So I think you said it really well. We have more kind of a charity model towards disabled people. We have a deficit model where we think, well, disabled people are deficient in some way and they're in need of charity or assistance. But the disabled uh, people's movement in this country, the movement for disabled rights, and then later as I talk about the disability justice movement that kind of forms as a reaction to the disability rights movement being so disproportionately white, <laughs> um, has whole different kind of models and understandings of disability at its core. And so one of those core tenets of the disability rights movement is this idea of the social model of disability, which I've been enjoying <laughs> teaching churches about because a lot of churches just don't know this, but the social model of disability looks at disability less as kind of a bodily experience and more as, as an experience of discrimination so that people are disabled because there are obstacles and barriers in society that make it impossible for them to participate. You know, like if someone had a ramp, they could get into the building. But if there's no ramp, the problem is not that they're in the wheelchair. The problem is no ramp. So that's a very mm -hmm. kind of baseline understanding of disability. But it's one that's really important for churches to have. Because without it, then we have kind of all these deficit models, and then we move towards all these charity models. But there's this radical kind of opening up around understandings of disability in disability studies and the disability rights movement, as I mentioned, the movement for disability justice, in really understanding that disability intersects with experiences of racism and capitalism and sexism. And if we're going to really uh, fight for the liberation of disabled people in the church, we can really join forces in fighting those evils. And I point out that ableism, especially, which is discrimination against disabled people, is a sin. So I really invite churches to repent of that sin and to, and, and the way I try to go about it in the book is like examining my own sin of ableism because as a parent and a pastor, like, I've had to see things about my own beliefs about disabled people or my own ministry that aren't so great. Um, but as I start to see those and kind of disabuse myself of my own ableism and as the church does that work, I really think then we can come alongside disabled people in this movement for justice. So like you said, we're not out in front of them or we're not patrons. We truly are working hand in hand alongside them because that's the other things I just want to celebrate, you know, the movement for disability rights in this country and the movement for disability justice and how much wisdom there is. And it just makes me sad <laughs> that we don't know about it as a church. So sometimes churches are kind of like, well, 
I wouldn't know where to start. And I'm always like, well, what about listening to disabled leaders in your own community? I mean, it's not the case that we don't have <laughs> disabled leaders. We have, you know, Judy Human just passed away. She's the mother of the disability rights movement. We have incredible examples and advocates all around us, but it's just a matter of kind of opening our eyes and our ears to appreciate their leadership and to really follow what they're doing. Before we started recording, we were talking about some of the teaching you're doing this very semester. I thought it might be good to have you talk a bit about that because I found that very interesting and helpful, including the course you did right at the sort of 2020, it got disrupted by the pandemic, where you were bringing together PTS students with um, students at TCNJ in, in New Jersey. But maybe speak even more broadly about some of the teaching experiences you've had in this area. Teaching has always been incredibly humbling for me, <laughs> and especially teaching around ministry with disabled people uh, has been really humbling to me because I realize so much that these folks that I'm trying to amplify in my book, Disabled Ministers and Leaders, by and large, aren't even in our classrooms today in seminaries um, because they don't feel welcome there or because they haven't been encouraged to apply or because they go and they visit the campus and it's not accessible or because they get so discouraged. I mean, I um, have been, you know, it's it's such a privilege for me to be a mentor to disabled uh, students, both master students and PhD students in theological education. And they're really running up against you know, casual, not ill-meaning, but casual and pervasive ableism <laughs> within the system, even when they try to access the accommodations that they need. And accommodations are, are rights. They're not privileges, but students are so often made to feel as though they're burdensome to the institution or, um, you know, that these are privileges and they better be, you know, extra responsible, more responsible, say, than the average student um, to mm. to continue to to have them. And so I, mm. I don't mean to point fingers just at Princeton Seminary. I think this is a, um, a problem that we have in higher education that, you know, disability studies scholars have been working on for 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 decades. But I felt it very acutely as a teacher. Um, I talk about in the book how I could see how our spaces, our classrooms were inaccessible to students. I could see how the attendance policies were really hostile <laughs> to disabled students. And that wasn't something that, you know, anyone meant for that to feel that way. But if you're a disabled student and you're, you know, signing up for this class and you're reading through the syllabus and you're going, oh, I'm chronically ill, how am I going to avoid these absences and have them affecting my grade? And it just is so difficult to even feel safe and supported in your learning and then also, I think in the scope of the classroom, I just realized that so many of the things that we were teaching about Christian leadership um, and ministry were really embedded in these frameworks that, again, just excluded disabled people at the outset. And so disabled people couldn't see themselves in these paradigms for leadership. And I think that we're we're doing better on this. Like I see so many movements within kind of clergy culture to talk about the importance of rest, right? And to not glorify <laughs> this kind of superhuman <laughs> pastor. But you can just imagine how concerning this is to someone who hasn't experienced a disability or lives with anxiety when our models of Christian leadership pathologize anxiety, <laughs> you know, as being the problem, right? In the congregational system, 
things like this. And so I could see in my classroom, even in the things that I was teaching, I started like teaching these models for leadership and going, oh no, wait, this subtly makes disabled people into a problem, right? And oh, it's that kind of like W.E.B. Du Bois, like how does it feel to be a problem? Like for disabled people just encountering that in our, you know, higher education for disabled people and counting that in our churches is exhausting. So that just gave me a lot of empathy. Um, and then at the same time, I would say teaching these students gave me a lot of hope because I could see the gifts that they bring <laughs> to ministry. And I talk about how this class that you mentioned that had to go online in the middle of 2020, like everybody's classes, was a class that I was partnering with um, the Career and Community Studies Program at TCNJ, where adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities can go through a college course of study. And so um, a colleague over there and me, we were partnering in putting together in the classroom our ministry students with their college students on this course on Christian disability ministry. And it was just incredible watching my students learn from the career and community studies students. And I talk about how then we went online in the pandemic. It's like, oh my gosh, another challenge to this class. But then to see what happened was that these career and community studies students, the intellectually disabled students, like really stepped into a leadership role because we were praying all these prayers about the pandemic because it was just so unsettling and awful. And they were just so bold to say, to just like, put their lament on their sleeve and say, I am so angry. I can't see my friends. I'm so lonely. And my seminary students, you know, are kind of taught to, I feel like be a bit more formal in their prayers. <laughs> and they were so ministered to by these students just crying out <laughs> for God. And so there were these moments where it was just like the hope of, wow, if we had theological, you know, education that supported students with disabilities in our classrooms, how much more would we be learning, not just about, you know, ministry, but about God? Mm -hmm. That was a fascinating moment when you said that one student just sort of cried out, you know, this isn't fair. And uh, <laughs> the students didn't quite, you know, it, it sort of brought everybody to silence almost because uh, and, and asking, you know, why did this happen? And not having a clear pat answer to it kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, some of the best ministry training you could ever get. And I also feel like some of the best ministry training because it, reminds you, you know, this is one of the things that I love about congregations is I think God is deeply active in the life of the congregation. It just reminds you to be attuned as a pastor to God's ministry and leadership, right, in all people, you know, and we say that, that we believe that the spirit is going to be poured out upon everyone. But do we really act that way, you know, and so that's my experience as a pastor, you know, is being led by my disabled congregants and learning how to pray better and learning how to be an advocate. I've had a crash course in that with my daughter, but also with my congregants and the prayers that they offer every Sunday when, you know, they're praying because their depression is preventing them from being able to work and they feel lousy about it because we live in a you know culture that deeply glorifies work and they've got to navigate Medicaid and all this stuff. So um, I just, you know, really, that's one of the things I, I try to lift up in the book is we have this opportunity as a church to be a haven, right? And a refuge for disabled people and then to amplify their ministry and leadership and I don't think it's that complicated, but I think we often get in the way of that, like I said, because we have preconceptions of disabled people. And I think we're just not as a society, we're not listening to them, right? So, but if the church can do that work, I start to get really hopeful about what, you know, Jesus can really do in moving us towards justice. 
maybe as a final question, one of the things I was really fascinated in reading these books is I I came to see more how your ministry and theological interests and your anthropology are not actually two things, but they're one. And you're showing how theological reflection is enriched by attention to local communities, to actual ethnographic study of what's actually going on on the ground. Maybe speak to that as a final reflection. Yeah, I mean, that's really what I've seen myself offering to theological education um, over the past couple years uh, to practical theology is these tools for really getting at the lived experiences of people in our congregations and witnessing to where God is already active um, and also to where there's hurt and pain and we're missing people. And I hope that these tools, you know, they translate obviously to an academic field and they help us, I think, make better knowledge, more ethical, (laughs) um, empirical knowledge. But I think they also, as you said, they inform ministry. Um, And I think that, you know, pastors are so busy, right? They don't have a lot of time to just sit (laughs) at the feet of their congregants and listen. Although, you know, I mean, I think about uh, Mary doing that and I think, well, that that really is ministry. <laughs> um, but but that's kind of what I get to do, right? And my work is really immerse myself in the lives of, of folks. And I talk about ethnography as like taking seriously both what people say and what people do. Um, and then I, I think, the, yeah, the difference kind of as, as a practical theologian as well is I expect God to be present there. And I expect my informants to help me see God and a fuller kind of vision of God than I ever could have seen on my own. And I think that's one of the things that is so exciting about this way of doing um, theology is it's, and, and this actually reminds me of the wisdom of disabled people as well, is it's really collaborative. So I always talk about like, I can't do my research without other people. I rely on them. Like I deeply need them. Like I wouldn't have two books, right? If I didn't have all these people in China that had helped me write this one. And then, you know, all these people in these churches that had helped me write the second one. So I think one of the things that I love about ethnographic methods is what I call epistemological humility. The idea that like, we need each other um, to know more about human beings and know more about God. And I think that these relationships are so, um, deeply theological because we're indebted to one another, right? As we we learn about one another and we we seek to do ministry together. And that reminds me of the way in which, you know, each of us is indebted to our savior, right? That we really, so th- this idea of, of reliance on each other, this idea about making knowledge together, these are the things that I really like to kind of lift up to my students who may think that these things are separate, like, you know, may think what does, you know, ethnographic research, right, have to do with my, my ministry. Um, But I think it, you know, has everything to do with it. And I try to convince people of that, especially in the book, you know, from inclusion to, to justice that, you know, the folks who are leading in disability ministry are already present in our communities and congregations and, and Jesus is already working through them. So it really is just a matter of kind of um, being willing to receive, I think, because I, I position myself um, as standing on the shoulders of others as really like receiving so much from this work, um, just as much as obviously I'm able to contribute by by uh, writing and sharing it with others. One of the great things about both of these books is they're so beautifully written. So anyone uh, 
interested in these topics, I highly recommend both because I, I found it just very easy to, to read every page to sort of go straight through it because of the amazing writing style, the storytelling, the narrative aspect of it. So I just want to thank you for both of these and thank you for being on the podcast. And I hope people uh, will read both of your, your recent books from inclusion to justice and families we need. And uh, thank you so much, Aaron, for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me.